Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. I'm Scott Kennedy, Executive Director of Solving Kids Cancer in New York. Thank you all so much for joining this community discussion. We hope everyone's staying well out there. And today we're going to have a follow on the last week's webinar to have our expert panelists provide updates and cover some new topics that we hope you find useful during this time. Following this, we're very thankful to have a parent join us from a family in New York where both parents currently have COVID-19 and who will share their family's story and perspectives from their journey. Even though this is a virtual gathering today, our hope is to have an active community discussion. And so your participation is important. We welcome everyone to ask questions today by utilizing the Q&A function on the bottom bar of icons in your Zoom window or through Facebook Live when that goes live, which should be just any second. Please go ahead and submit questions for any of today's speakers anytime throughout the discussion, and we'll collect them and they'll be answered during the webinar. If some of the questions aren't addressed due to time constraints, we'll get them answered offline and follow up with an email of the responses. And I thank the guests for helping out with those answers offline. Um, and lastly, the webinar is being recorded and we'll have an archive available to you right afterward. We're grateful to have Drs. Tim Kripe and Jeff Oletta from Nationwide Children's Hospital back again with us to lead the discussion. Dr. Kripe is the Chief of Hematology and Oncology at Nationwide, and he's also a pioneering research scientist who studies the use of genetically modified viruses to selectively and safely kill cancer cells. Dr. Oletta is the director of the Host Defense and Infectious Disease Program and Bone Marrow Transplant Program. And both of these guys are leaders in the field as well as the hospital that they represent. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to turn it over to Dr. Kripe to start things off. Dr. Kripe. Uh, thank you, Scott. It's great to be with you again here with a little fireside chat in your living room. Uh, <laughs> I'm coming to you from Columbus, Ohio. And it's not as sunny as it would appear. We like to have wishful thinking. So again, just for the audience, I will be monitoring the chat questions and we'll try to squeeze some of those questions in as much as possible and throughout the conversation. So please don't hesitate to write them in and any we don't get to, we'll get to later in writing. And um, we're excited to have a guest with us, Sean, today to tell us about and we're going to try to limit the total time to 45 minutes, so hopefully we'll stick to that. And uh, before we get to Sean, uh, Dr. Oletta has prepared some slides for us to talk about an update and talk about therapy or potential therapies and some other issues about COVID-19 since he's our local expert as he's double boarded in both pediatric hematology oncology and pediatric infectious diseases. So Jeff, please uh, take it away for us. Great. Thank you, Scott, and thank you, Tim. I'm going to share my screen right now. So, should be able to see it. Do you see it, everyone? Yes, sir. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Um, since the last time we spoke, a lot has changed, and that's a characteristic of a pandemic. So, I wanted to give everyone an update a little bit on the U.S. experience because now the U.S., unfortunately, is the largest country with most cases and the most uh, deaths in terms of exceeding other countries like China. 
In addition, I wanted to talk a little bit about therapies. I didn't get enough time during our last session, so I wanted to home a little bit on therapies and also talk about vaccine development, particularly vaccine development in the context of a pandemic and how processes are changing in order to move forward vaccine development faster. And then lastly, we touch a little bit on uh, changes that again, that are happening at pediatric oncology centers uh, due to the audience that we have. So to start with, uh, again, I wanna direct everyone to helpful websites. Uh, the three helpful websites are the World Health Organization, which is not pictured here, but the most helpful websites for everyone on this webinar right now with regards to being in America are the CDC, the Centers for Disease Prevention and Control website, which has two very outstanding sections that I've listed here, caring for children and cleaning your home, which are often questions that we received on the panel before. And then also your State Department of Health, which will take you through where the cases of COVID-19 are within your state. And I'll share with you the Ohio Department of website in the future here. So the first thing is the update on COVID-19. This is actually uh, the first case of COVID-19. So these are bronchial secretions. These are the viruses right over here. And you see these little dark things here, these speckles. Again, that's how the coronavirus got its name, corona or crown. Um, when you go to the CDC website right now, you see a lot of darkness in states. So the darker the state, the higher the prevalence of COVID-19. So we've heard a lot of stories in particular about New York right now and California and these emerging epicenters that they're called in terms of Dearborn, Michigan, for example, and, and potentially Louisiana as well. So as you can see, there's a high prevalence right now of COVID-19 disease. And remember the, the virus is called SARS-CoV-2. So SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that causes COVID-19. And SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that people are being checked in terms of nasopharyngeal uh, samples. So that's how they're able to detect the virus. So again, looking from yesterday's data, March 30th, we see that close to 140,000 cases, around 2,400 deaths. And it's just staggering when you think about this. A lot of loved ones have died. You've heard about this notorious neurosurgeon who disjointed the conjoined twins who died in New York as well as coronavirus. And a lot of personal stories in terms of family members and not being able to be at their bedside in terms of nursing home patients who are dying. A lot of this is uh, unfortunately going to increase as, the, as we get in terms of the surge or the high level of incidence of the virus across America. Uh, when we actually look at how we compare with other countries, so again, US is here in the pink. As you can see, every three days, the number of deaths are increasing uh, dramatically. And again, we're making our own curve, unfortunately. We're not downsloping. We're not plateauing like China or Italy. We are still in exponential growth phase. So that is, that is troublesome. It is to be expected on one hand in terms of this is where our pandemic arrests in terms of America, but at the same time, it makes us take pause in terms of how widespread and how detrimental COVID-19 is gonna be in America. These are other ways of looking at data. So Steve Rust is a lead data scientist. So when you look at this curve, it's really hard to kind of figure out other than what I just told you. But this is active cases per million people. It's very normalized to a million people. As you can see, Italy is still going dramatically up. South Korea is going down and the US is going up as well. And then when we actually look at days since we achieved 10 cases per million, you can see 
the U.S. is actually outpacing Italy right now. That makes us take a, a big warning sign. So that's why, you know, for example, here in Ohio, our governor, Governor DeWine, said we're going to nix uh, school for another two weeks uh, in terms of extending the school dismissal with regards to a May 1st deadline. So again, this is what epidemiologists, these are the type of data that epidemiologists are using and looking at in order to make uh, decisions. Jeff, uh, I just want to make one quick, quick uh, one point here. You know, I, we are a much bigger country and, than some of those countries, at least South Korea and Italy. So on the one hand, you think, oh, we're going to have more cases, but this is per million. So this is the rate. So that's an important point, I think, you, the way- you That's exactly right. It's normalized across, so population, uh, yes, it matters, but this is normalized data per million. You're exactly right, Tim. Even scarier. Yep. So again, back of the napkin math right now. So roughly we have about 330 million people in America. It's estimated that between 70 to 150 million, depending upon the model, will become infected. So let's split it right in the middle at 100 million and say 100 million people get infected. Again, you know, you hear on the news that roughly about 10% of people get hospitalized. Well, that's 10 million people of 100 million. And then about 1% of those 10 million then go on in terms of potentially needing an intensive care unit. So that's 1 million people. So again, as Tim alludes to, we have an, an incredible population relative to other countries. And when you hear 10% and 1%, you're like, ah, those are low percentages. But when you consider how much of 10% and 1% are of a total population of 330 million, it really strikes home. So this is why it strikes home, because this is a survey out of uh, 2018 from the American Hospital Association, where they have listed the total number of staff beds in America and then a total number of intensive care units in America. So this is what we're keep on talking about this graph, and that's exceeding the healthcare capacity by not doing inter early interventions like staying at home, for example. Um, so this tells it all. In this rough estimate, back of the napkin math, one million people are gonna need intensive care units. We've already exceeded the number of intensive care units in America. So if we don't quote unquote flatten the curve, by utilizing protective measures, we're going to exceed our capacity in terms of how to deliver healthcare. And that's exactly what we're seeing in New York right now. Remember, Dr. Co or, um, Governor Cuomo is constantly on the news, begging for help, begging for resources in terms of both positive product, um, protection equipment, PPE, but also caregivers as well. And then that's why that naval ship, the Comfort, went in with the Red Cross on it, 1,000 beds. Again, we're exceeding the capacity in New York right now to deliver healthcare. And I'm sure you watched the news about emergency physicians and ICU staff. This is exactly what's happening right now in America. So when we think about physical distancing and restrictions in terms of not going to work, for example, is that making a difference? So this is data from Ohio. So again, normalizing it to per million, you can see that the US is dramatically going up, but with early interventions by at least our governor uh, and our acting uh, Department of Health director, they definitely made the right decision in terms of Ohio not exceeding or not going up in terms of exponential growth right now. So there's a lot of things behind that, but overall I would say yes, that at least in Ohio, physical distancing and restrictions are working. This is what we're projected to be. If we did not do that, 
we would roughly have about over 60,000 new cases uh, per day. And we would have had picked, excuse me, we would have peaked around March 20th in terms of the surge or the highest number of cases. Because we've made these interventions, we've flattened that and we've extended that to about April 20th, where we're projected to have about 10,000 new cases of COVID-19. Again, that, again, that's a boatload of COVID-19. Please don't get me wrong. But again, when you're thinking about healthcare capacity in, a, in Ohio, we're then able to potentially and hopefully buffer that. So these are a little bit, a couple slides on that. So yellow is critical in terms of the resource. Gray is strained and um, blue is adequate. So again, number of staff so far so good. Uh, obviously positive protective exposure, uh, we're actually not so good at and we're re reaching critical levels in terms of N95s, for example. So again, despite flattening the curve, we have to ride out some hard times uh, up and coming. And then this is a key slide for Ohio. We have not exceeded our healthcare capacity yet because of these early interventions. So is Ohio going to be a success story? Hard to say because we haven't yet hit the peak, but at least we've done as best planning as we can in terms of that. So what about the patients on the line, the families on the line? You know, what do we know about pediatrics, COVID-19 and pediatrics? So based upon my last, um, the last webinar that I was here, we went over some data. And in summary, COVID-19 remains primarily an adult disease in terms of severe infection and high incidence. I wanted to share some data in terms of what we know with regards to children who have severe enough COVID-19 in order to make it into the intensive care unit. So this is a shared resource. Um, in other words, the VPS, Virtual Pediatric System, all these blue areas are uh, centers, pediatric centers that share data with us. So pretty good representation of America uh, and then as well as Canada. So remember, there are millions of kids, right? There are millions of kids uh, when you combine Canada and America. As you can see, only roughly 41 of them are in an intensive care unit right now. So can we say that this is the, the best data in terms of looking at overall incidence of COVID-19 infection pediatrics? No, but at least this number isn't in the thousands right now, right? Because again, based upon that, uh, that comment that I made of millions of kids right now. So again, if, if you're the family with 41 kids in the intensive care unit, this slide doesn't help you out at all. But with regard to be at least providing and giving data to those on the webinar right now, this statement holds true. COVID-19 primarily remains an adult disease, particularly in severity requiring an intensive care unit right now. Um, so next, I wanted to shoot a little bit to, to therapies. We didn't have too much time to talk about them, so I wanted to put them into their proper perspective and let people know, yes, a lot's going on right now. Uh, but unfortunately, not so much in pediatrics. Um, so when we think about therapies, we talked a little bit about this last time, there are four types. Ones are drugs that are made, one are cells that are given, the other are these cytokines or these factors that actually are released into the bloodstream that have direct antiviral effects. And then there are things called antibodies. And antibodies are, are produced in response to an infection. Uh, so when, when we drill down to these, We've talked about how other clinical indications 
medicines for under other clinical indications are right now being tested uh, for COVID-19. So these are the anti-malarial agents or arthritides, so that hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine medications that you've heard about. Another is the lopinavir, uh, ritonavir, which is also known as Kaletra, which is an anti-HIV medicine. And the third drug right now is remdesivir that we've talked about. Again, in vitro, in other words, outside the body, in a petri dish, very good activity. And then also in mouse models, very good activity, but we yet don't have enough human data uh, right now. So natural killer cells, we talked about here at Nationwide Children's Hospital, Dean Lee is our director of cancer immunotherapy and cell therapy program. NK cells are very good antiviral cells that our body makes in response to a viral uh, infection that's challenged for us. So our, uh, as we get the virus, these NK cells kind of group together like a football team and go to the, defense, or go to the front line and then uh, try to prevent you know, further infection in the body. Mesenchymal stromal cells and these MAPCs, which are called multipotent adult progenitor cells. Again, these are certain cells that actually quench the immune response. In other words, we found that certain patients who have COVID-19 have such a robust immune response that release all these chemicals that their blood pressure drops tremendously and it's hard to stabilize them. So these are particular cells that have been used in other contexts to kind of quench the immune response and to dampen it. So we talked about antiviral cytokines, these interferon alpha and beta cytokines. Again, these are released by cells and they have direct cytotoxic effects against the virus. In other words, direct killing effects against the virus. And then lastly, you might have heard about monoclonal antibodies. These are, are antibodies that are manufactured in companies and then tested in animals and then tested in humans in early phase and then given to humans to see if they work. And then there are also natural response antibodies. In other words, when you and I get challenged with viruses, our immune system is checked in. It's A, checked in to know what virus we just experienced, and then B, it's checked in to have a, a memory response for that virus. So that if we have the virus, they get it again, hopefully our memory cells don't allow the virus to get the best of us. And again, that's the whole premise of a vaccine. If we give a vaccine, we stimulate our immune system to create memory against that vaccine so that if we get challenged with that particular bacteria, uh, that we actually don't give, get overwhelming infection to that bacteria. And then lastly, again, for those patients who have robust immune responses, a lot of inflammation in their body, people have used tocilizumab or anti-IL-6. The problem with all this is none of them are FDA approved. A, we don't know if they're safe enough in these patients. B, we don't know if they're all effective enough. And C, some of them aren't readily available. In other words, hydroxychloroquine, uh, there's manufacturing issues in particular also with Kaletra. So even though we desperately need these drugs, either not, uh, you know, some of them are not even made yet. For example, the monoclonal antibodies that I've talked about. So this is coming to the forefront, something called convalescent plasma. In other words, you, taking someone who has COVID-19, taking their plasma because the plasma is the part of the blood that has the circulating natural antibodies and then using them to fight infection or COVID-19 in another person. So that's what the co uh, convalescent plasma means. So Jeff, uh, uh, had very few questions so far, and I think I misspoke and asked people to type them into chat. 
instead of the Q&A box. Um, but uh, I, one question I have, or one point I'd like to make on this slide and treatment considerations obviously is on everybody's mind, but there's sort of a, a saying or a dictum in medicine that the more options you have, the worse our therapy is because that means we don't have you know, one single that we know works. And there's a lot of options here. And I think it reflects that, um, ah, good, I just got a ton of questions in. Um, so, so that's one point that we don't really know what works, which you've, which you've made the case. The other point is there's been very little discussion about this NK cell thing, but we know that NK cells don't function as well as you get older, and they're a primary defense against viruses. So I really think that's something that needs to be, uh, have, have a little more focused attention on because there are programs, companies, institutions that have NKs that are ready that could be given uh, that might help mitigate those with illness. Do you have any comments about those things? Yeah, so that, that's obviously the hope. The issue though is NK cells, once they're stimulated, release a lot of things, right? Um, so not just the antiviral cytokines, they can actually release pro-inflammatory cytokines. So technically, if you activate um, uh, a particular cell, you actually may do more harm than good. Um, so again, it's, it's uh, kind of a double-edged sword with regards to that without having the data to support giving NK cells right now. So uh, one <clears throat> relative to the convalescent plasma piece, uh, we have an attendee who asked, how can you get tested to see if you have antibodies so that you can donate? Is that a possibility? Yeah, that's a great question. And unfortunately, right now, uh, all of this is gonna be research-based. In other words, there has to be an open study at a particular institution in order to then enroll on that study so that they can take your sera and then see if there are antibodies against it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you needed to know if you had COVID-19, right? So in other words, if you've had COVID-19, then that's one of the eligibility criteria to actually enroll on these studies. And finally, this one relates to one of your earlier slides. Are children's hospitals at risk of being overburdened, even though by far the affected population is not generally seen at children's hospitals? Yeah, so uh, great question. So I wanted to go back uh, to my previous um, webinar and show uh, this data here. Um, so this data is from the CDC. So this was a preliminary report uh, done for about a month um, and then released on March 18th, 2020. So I wanted to do show two things. Number one, this is all cases in America of COVID-19 during this preliminary stage. And for that person asking the question, you could see that kids zero to 19 have a very low hospitalization rate. Um, and right now, no ICU admissions. Again, that's, again, things change rapidly. So now that you see in, in about a week's time or so, there are more kids in the ICU uh, and um, no case fatalities here, but in the news, there's been a couple of kids who've gotten the exposure. So again, when we look at kids relative to adults, we see that very few are hospitalized, very few are in the ICU right now. So again, that's where I made the statement uh, previously that um, right now COVID-19 uh, is primarily an adult disease and particularly in severity. That said, uh, we still are, um, could be overwhelmed with terms of healthcare providers being out or being exposed or quarantined. And, reducing staffing levels and so forth. Plus PPE, we're using much more just to be cautious. And so we're also gonna potentially run out of that as well. 
Yeah, that is true. I think that the, the bigger risk aren't the kids to us, but us to the kids um, with regards to the COVID-19 actually circulating into the adult community. And to Tim's point, uh, right now you might have heard about you know, different strategies to reuse PPE. Uh, so we have uh, Battelle here in Columbus and they've, they've made these modifiers uh, or these, these uh, machines that can sterilize in order to reuse N95 masks right now. So again, everybody on this webinar, regardless if you're a healthcare provider or not, you're making a contribution based upon what you do in the community because of the fact that this is like going to war is the analogy and all hands on deck with regards to repurposing resources and therefore rethinking and, and being able to provide the healthcare system enough resources, enough healthy personnel. So again, that we don't oversee or excuse, excuse me, rather exceed the healthcare capacity. And will children's hospitals be used to care for adults is the question. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so in New York, that is exactly what's happening. Uh, there are a couple uh, pediatric hospitals where what they've done is obviously there are several pediatric hospitals in New York City. So they've basically triaged where the most uh, patients will go to a couple of those hospitals to therefore increase the capacity for adults in order to be treated there. All right, we're gonna ha have to scoot along here, get through your slides in time. Okay, so uh, again, um, just gonna kind of go really quick. First statement, viruses are parasites. The whole point is the virus needs a human cell in order to replicate. So it kind of attaches itself, kind of disassembles itself, reproduces itself and all of its parts, and then leaves the cell. So these therapies that I've just mentioned are targets. They're targeting where the virus actually attaches itself. Some of these monoclonal antibodies are convalescent plasma. And then also with regards to how it disassembles, and then kind of reassembles. So that's where people are thinking about, there's lots of other potential targets and lots of other drug development that could be done. So we mentioned this last time, the WHO solidarity trial. This is primarily in adults who present across the world. Again, this is the World Health Organization is sponsoring this. You can get randomized as an adult to one of four uh, uh, therapies here, and then followed over time in order to see what your response is. So the thing that to kind of put this into context is some of these things we have right now, these drugs, for example, some of these things are gonna be here later this year, like NK cells, MAPCs and MSCs and this convalescent plasma. Some of these are gonna take a while to get, like vaccines. And then some of them are gonna be even more time in order to develop new antiviral medications. So I wanted to start focusing a little bit on vaccines so again, we're not gonna have this readily uh, available. And I wanted to kind of go over why that is. So uh, when we think about current pediatric trials, this was my last slide on this. When you go to clinicaltrials.gov and put in COVID-19 and pediatrics, there are only two trials that are available. So one question that came up were what are the pediatric trials out there? The answer is none, at least in clinicaltrials.gov, because when you drill down on this trial, this is uh, for patients that are 18 years to and older. So there are no pediatric centric therapy tr uh, trials right now. So the other question that came up that I saw is, okay, if we don't have anything, what can we do? Well, we as caregivers can uh, file what are called emergency INDs with the FDA, the Food and Drug, Emer or, um, Food and Drug Administration. So basically what this is, 
is let's say if I wanted to use someone's plasma, I didn't have a protocol, but I had a sick patient, I would write uh, the FDA, ask them for approval, and then provide medical information on the patient. And then they would give a decision. If they said yes, then I have to contact my IRB, the Institutional Review Board, come up with consent forms, consent the family, and then wait uh, for us to be able to, to be able to um, apherese, in other words, take the plasma off of the patient who had COVID in order to give it to the patient with COVID. So my whole point is these EIND filings take incredible bandwidth in the institution. It's not like your, your average community hospital can do this because there has to be people with, who know government, who've interact, interacted with the FDA, who know how to file these emergency INDs, and then we have to have the bandwidth in terms of getting the plasma off of the, the donor. So all of these things, these EINDs are usually filed at academic centers. So again, when you think about capacity in America, not everyone goes to an academic center. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people go more to community hospitals than academic hospitals. There's no way for community hospitals to do these kind of things. So segueing into vaccines, that's what we really need, right? And I just wanted to go through what it means to create an antibody response. So antigens are these little things that are presented to a cell uh, and then activate that cell. So I know this is maybe a little bit quirky, but think about you having a dog and a biscuit in your hand. You're presenting the biscuit to the dog, the dog reacts and takes the biscuit out of your hand. That's the same thing that happens with the immune set response. The presenting cell, presents the antigen which creates the response, the biscuit, to the next cell which then becomes activated by it in order to do the immune response. So essentially what happens is you have these antigen presenting cells, they, have, they activate these T cells that then activate B cells to make these antibodies. Remember we talked about memory B cells. These are the things that are rip ready to go in case there's another challenge to the body of the previous virus or bacteria from a vaccine. So these B cells will react to these antigens. Uh, these antigens will attack, attach themselves to the B cell and then activ activate the B cell. So when we give vaccines, that's exactly what happens. We give an antigen to stimulate an immune response to make antibodies in the body, in particular to also create these memory B cells. So in summary, you have these inactivated things called antigens in the vaccine, which still stimulates an immune response to make antibodies. So that if you're challenged again with these things, you can actually eliminate the virus or the bacteria with the antibodies that you have memory for. So how do we get there? That's the big question. How do we go from COVID-19 right now all the way to a COVID-19 vaccine? So it's all about picking the right antigen. Remember, antigens activate the immune response, the biscuit that activates the dog to get it out of your hand. So you have to pick the right one. Uh, and there could be lots of things to choose. And the problem is, A, they're hard to replicate. In other words, how do you make them outside the body, outside the virus, to still stimulate an immune response? And then B, how do you make enough of it in order to produce enough vaccine? So there's lots of different technologies uh, going on for that right now. And then there's the phases of vaccine development. Okay, so you got your, your, uh, your antigen, you're able to put it into a vaccine. Okay, does it work? Does it work in a mouse model? That's what preclinical studies are. Does it work in a human? That's clinical development. 
Is it gonna get approval from the FDA, for example, in order to be manufactured at large scale and then make sure that there's no pathogens or contaminants in it in order to give it? So these are the phases that have to occur. So now the appreciation hopefully that you have is we can't just make a, vi a vaccine right off the dock because in the end, A, you wanna make sure it works and B, you wanna make sure it's safe. So what we can do is fast track things. So remember all those phases that I just said, we can fast track and consolidate them. So hopefully we can get the vaccine in faster during a pandemic. But in the end, you don't want something that doesn't work or you don't want something that harms. So what's the impact right now in terms of uh, children's care? All hospitals have visitor restrictions, for example. Uh, in addition, if your child has to be admitted to the hospital, expect that you and your child will be symptom screened. Uh, if your child is COVID-19, he or she will go to a special area of the hospital, for example. Same thing happens with outpatient visits. Your child, before he or she will come to the outpatient center, they will be screened uh, for symptoms. And then if they're positive for screens, they will undergo uh, the PCR testing in order to know if they're uh, SARS-CoV-2 positive. In addition, obviously, I mentioned the fact that the kids, not necessarily to us, but to us, are the adults being sick. And so what happens is right now at every children's hospital, every adult hospital, you can't enter the hospital unless you've been screened. Uh, a, you've been screened by symptoms, um, and then B, that you've actually filled out things either online or in person in terms of having, or rather to make sure that you don't have any COVID-19 positive symptoms. Yes, the answer to this question is right now there are emerging blood and medicine shortages. I know this community has dealt with that before. Um, right now we are at a point where we're highly encouraging blood donations, so please donate blood. Uh, donate plasma right now uh, in, in order to uh, decrease the high resource utilization of those blood products. So please donate. Uh, right now, there's nothing on formulary that's restricted other than hydroxychloroquine and, and chloroquine that I mentioned before and Kaletra, uh, again, because of manufacturing issues in, for, uh, in terms of that. Bone marrow transplants are happening. Obviously, there are now donor and recipient logistics that we have to go through in order to screen both the donor and the recipient in order to, and also get uh, certain graphs and cryopreserve them, freeze them before we actually start the conditioning regimen and then unfreeze them or thaw them and give them to the patient. Um, and then lastly, um, I know the audience that I'm, I'm talking to can understand this. This situation is highly dynamic. Um, the pandemic is uncertain, things change. Just think about our last webinar we had, and now the new information that we have now. Um, so flexibility is gonna be king for this. We're out of time. Yep. It's good. I'm good, Tim. All right. Oh, you wanna end there? Uh, yeah, I think I can end right here and say, one question that came up are, are viruses like SARS the new norm? And the answer is very simply, this virus is novel. We don't have, a, we've never encountered it before. It's a hardy virus, it lives on surfaces. It's easily transmitted and people can infect lots of different people. There are asymptomatic carriers and then kids shed the virus. So clearly because there's no experience or treatments or vaccines, this virus is in the driver's seat right now. So to answer the question, I don't think all viruses will be super viruses like SARS-CoV-2 
but I wanted to provide the context of why SARS-CoV-2 is so unique right now. A couple quick questions before we get to Sean. Uh, the new reality is that by the time we any, any real medical solutions or resolutions, a large majority of people will likely have contact with this virus. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, actually, there's going to be more people who uh, contact this virus through asymptomatic shedding, or I'm sorry, carriage. Uh, and so therefore, we are anticipating that there are probably going to be more people who have asymptomatic carriage than they actually get and develop COVID-19. Uh, great. So, Jeff, thank you for, for those. Uh, there's more questions. We'll try to get to some if time allows, but I think we really need to flip over sure. to Dr. Son. So we're going to move now from sort of the, the medical charts, graphs, uh, book bookworm kind of work that Jeff provided us that's very insightful and appreciative to uh, bring it down to a more personal level. Uh, we're really fortunate today to have Sean with us. Sean and his wife are... Uh, uh, COVID uh, patients now, and uh, we're very thankful to uh, have them to share their story with us. And uh, Sean works for WFAN and Sports Talk Radio in, in New York City, and he's made his time available despite uh, being ill. Uh, so Sean, um, we're looking forward to hearing your story and appreciative of, of your sharing it with us. Uh, but can you first tell us how you're doing now? Uh Thanks, doctor. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to jump on board here. Um, I'm doing really well. Um, I've been very thankful and lucky that I've had mild symptoms. Uh, my wife's doing well. I'm actually now going on, um, actually this today would be two weeks since my positive test came back. So exactly 14 days, about 18 days since I was tested. Um, so from a physical standpoint, I feel like I have gotten past this. Uh, I have no symptoms. I do have, I should say, still have a bit of a cough that is lingering that I can't seem to kick, um, but a lot better than it had been. Certainly, I don't have any of the initial symptoms like fever, chills. Um, you know, I never really suffered, uh, experienced much shortness in breath, uh, thankfully. Um, so I think from that standpoint, I feel really good. More. Physically, I feel good. Mentally, you know, being cooped up in my house with my wife and I have two young kids, uh, you know, that's less, that could be more challenging right now in this situation. Um, but I think we're all in that same, we're all in the same boat dealing with that right now, uh, especially here in New York where it's really been uh, pretty bad. Yeah, it's really bad there. We're sorry to be seeing that every day in the news. Uh, we're happy to hear that, that you're doing better. Can you tell us, do you know where you, where you got it from? Were there any known contacts or what do you suspect? And, and also in that theme of, of contacting and spreading how your wife and kids are doing and what you're doing at home to try to protect them. Yes, I've been asked this question a few times in terms of just friends and family and, you know, asking me, do I know where I contracted it? And my answer has been, I, I don't. Um, it's been, um, <clears throat> you know, I can't pinpoint an exact uh, time where I came into exposure of, of the virus. Um, I, I did go away on vacation for President's Week with my family. We went to Cancun, Mexico, got back uh, to New York um, on Saturday, February 22nd. The next day, I started to feel a little out of it. Uh, had, I, was, I had some fatigue, uh, some mild flu-like symptoms, um, tired. Uh, I had taken off a couple of days of work that week and then went back to work on Wednesday. Um, 
And Wednesday, I developed like laryngitis. I just, I felt good physically. I mean, I felt like I was, I didn't have any issues with regards to um, fatigue, fever, anything like that. But I, I did have um, laryngitis that lasted for about two days. Then I got through that, felt good again physically. Um, but at that point, I started to develop a bit of a cough. And that cough was a, um, not a normal cough that I, I, I've had coughs. You know, I thought maybe it was allergies, but this one was very, um, you know, unrewarding, you know, a cough, nothing would come up. Um, and it was just a constant, you know, tickle in my throat that I just couldn't get out. I couldn't get rid of, um, that turned into a sore throat. And again, I thought it was maybe the sore throat was just a result of the cough, but I, I never felt like I had fever. I never really felt anything out of it. I just wasn't, I wasn't a hundred percent. Uh, so I thought, you know, maybe I picked up a bug in Mexico, um, it wasn't until, you know, the following week that Friday, it was Friday, um, March 13th, uh, someone in our building um, had tested positive. We received an internal email from our company notifying that someone in our building, not from our company, is actually someone that was on the other side of our building had tested positive. Um, they made the decision to have everyone work remotely that Friday. <clears throat> so I happened to be working from home. And it's probably around 2 o'clock, I started to, you know, feel really out of it, had chills. Um, I started to, I checked my temperature, it was 99.6, so I had a little bit of a mild fever. Uh, I went upstairs and I just wanted to go to sleep. I, I just didn't want to get out of bed. I couldn't get, I couldn't get warm. Um, <clears throat> so my wife called the local urgent care and spoke to a nurse. They ended up calling me back. I spoke to the doctor. He screened me with some questions over the phone. Um, and then he had suggested that I come in. They happened to have, I was lucky to happen to have the test at that time available. Um, and they asked me to come in, they checked me in in the parking lot and then had me come around and eventually tested me for the flu first. I tested negative for the flu and then they tested me for COVID-19. Um, and then four days later, I got the result, results back that I tested positive. So I, I might've had a, a, a compromised immune system at some point when I got back from Mexico. And I live in, I live on Long Island, which is about 40, I'm about 43 miles, um, suburb of New York city. I work in Manhattan. So I take the Long Island Railroad, which is very populated, crowded. I take mass transportation with the local subways, uh, which are packed. So I, I could have come across it from uh, any, of, any of those times where I was, you know, just around those, a lot of people. Um, but again, I can't put a finger on exactly where I got it. Yeah, I think that's a growing storyline. You know, originally it was, oh, have you had any contacts with people? And that's where we worry that there's a high risk, but there's clearly a large community spread. And I think from what Jeff has shown and talked about both last webinar and today, a lot of the asymptomatic people carriers are asymptomatic, not symptoms, and you don't even know it. And so we could all be interacting with people uh, and need for global social distancing. So tell us about your home life now that you're at, you're at home and uh, your wife and kids and um, what kinds of measures are you having to live with? So I'm spending a lot of time in my basement right now. So uh, Man um, I'm keeping, keeping busy down here. Yeah, exactly. Um, my wife and kids are doing well. My wife tested positive about a week ago, last Tuesday, and she is doing great. She has um, uh, feels pretty much pretty normal. Uh, I would say that she's pretty much symptom-free. My youngest son, I have a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old. My youngest um, had at one point developed a cough. He had a slight fever, so we were concerned. We got him tested with my wife. Thankfully, he came back negative. My oldest 
really hasn't had any symptoms at all. And when we were first, when I was first told of my positive uh, diagnosis, uh, my first question was, well, what do I do? How do I handle my wife and kids? Because, you know, they're living with me. I'm, ex I'm exposing myself um, to them daily. You know, we're, we're living in the same house. Um, and and their, their response to me was, um, we just assumed that they've been exposed and that the guidance at that time was self-quarantine for 14 days. And we should, you know, my wife and kids were given the same guidance. So we really haven't gone anywhere in two weeks. Um, try to get out of the house uh, occasionally to walk around the neighborhood, you know, keeping my social distancing from anyone that I see, uh, hanging out in my backyard when I can just to kind of keep sane. But my wife needs to doing well. They're being homeschooled right now. Our schools are closed right now through the end of um, April. Well, actually April 15th, but it'll probably be extended uh, with how things are looking. And we're just, you know, you know, we get we have our moments where we lose it on each other, and you know, we kind of just deal with that. And um, for the most part, you know, we've been we've been hanging in there. So um, I've, we've been thankful for that. Are there any silver linings to this whole thing for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't spent this much time with my wife and kids uh, in this period in a three-week window than I think I have since, you know, since ever. So uh, having a chance to connect with our kids and, you know, doing some activities that we might not normally do, or whether it's playing board games and, you know, getting them off their computer, um, you know, kind of hanging out and, and having, you know, meals together, uh, which a lot of times, you know, I, I don't have that opportunity to do working in Manhattan and having a busy schedule. Um, that that part of it has been really nice to reconnect with my with my family, um, and you know, look, we're all going to remember these days. You know, as as we get older, my kid, I tell my kids that they're they're, they're witnessing history right now, and um, this is a very unprecedented unprecedented time in in our history, um, and that you know, looking back at it, my wife's keeping a journal every day. You know, whenever Ann, uh, Governor Cuomo does his address, she's taking photos, keeping track of the numbers, and She's documenting everything. So we're, you know, we're, we're keeping busy. And um, I think as a whole, as a family, we're, we're, we're doing really well and um, enjoying our time together most of the time. Yeah, no, that's great to hear. I think we're all having similar experiences in terms of uh, uh, getting to, you know, more time with our families um, when that's possible uh, for those of us who can cohabitate. What, um, I guess we only have a, a couple short minutes left. Do you, have any, or would you do anything differently along the way looking back? Um, you, uh, I think your story tells us one that it's not always cough and fever, right? You sort of think cough and fever. You had laryngitis, you had a tickle in your throat, whatever. You, you might have had some symptoms that aren't what you read about as the typical. You think, um, would you have done anything differently? You tested sooner? I don't know. Uh, do you have any advice for anyone out there? Yeah, I, you know what, I, I probably wouldn't, looking in, in hindsight, I, I don't think I would have handled it any differently than I did now. Um, I really didn't feel, I, I think I'm in the majority of the people that probably are exposed to the, to the virus at some of my age group or younger, is that you don't really feel much. A lot of people probably don't have uh, very aggressive symptoms, and um, it might just seem like a mild cold or allergies, and they may indeed be um, be positive and could, could spread it. So, um, you know, that, that's the scary part of it. Um, but as far as like, I had like some really strange symptoms, like, and, and I guess I have heard about that since then. It's probably, it's not as strange as I probably thought it was at the time. Like I lost my sense of taste. I lost my sense of smell for about two days. 
My wife is going through that now. She's starting to get it back, but she's also lost it. Um, and, you know, and, and this is just an odd one, and I don't know if it's a coincidence that actually having you guys here as doctors. I mean, my oldest, my 15-year-old, um, developed a sty on his eye. And, you know, a lot of our friends and um, fam and other family members that we know, we asked, and it was it was strange that some of their kids also developed styes. And I don't know if it's just a coincidence of being exposed to the virus. They didn't, you know, other than that, they felt fine, but just like a, a sty on their eye. And it was, it was odd that I heard it from a few people. It wasn't just my own son. So it's a strange, it's a strange virus. With, with, it impacts people different ways. I work with a bunch of coworkers that tested positive. They're, it's affecting them different ways than it's affecting me. And that's what's really scary and I think just, you know, adds a, little, a lot of concern is just we don't really know that much about it. And as, as someone who's dealing with it right now, um, you know, what kind of guidance? I haven't really gotten any clear guidance in terms of when I'm, I'm clear to leave isolation. I mean, I feel fine. And the guidance I said, if you're, if you're clear for 14 days and you don't show symptoms, you could technically go out and you're, you're technically clear. But at first they, asked, they said I had to take two negative tests and that guidance changed recently. So that part is a little still iffy and, and, and I think we need improvement in terms of that messaging to the public to, that have had it that now are coming off of two weeks and are symptom free. How do we know we're safe to go back out there into the public and, and start socializing? Not that there really there's much to do right now, but you know, go to the grocery store, go out, drive around, that type of stuff. So that part has been probably the most frustrating thing for me personally right now in my person and my situation. Well, and even when there is guidance, it seems to change every hour. So, Jeff, do you have any exactly. comments about the sty and the? Assistant? Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I have not heard that the um, the lack of of taste and smell uh, has been uniquely associated with uh, SARS-CoV-2. The, the issue is, I, I think a lot of us uh, on the webinar can appreciate when we get a really bad cold, we can't taste anything and we can't smell anything when there's a lot of you know, mucus in terms of our sinus tract and all. So it's not as if we haven't had that sensation before, but the issue is outside of, you know, severe congestion and all, that's what makes this a little bit uh, unique. And it could have to do in terms of where the actual virus lands uh, on the respiratory epithelium and, and where it starts to reproduce itself as a parasite and all. So it is interesting uh, for that. Um, I would direct actually Sean and uh, anybody else uh, to the CDC website, uh, which is outstanding and has some uh, guidance in particular with what you're alluding to, how things are rapidly changing in terms of when to go back to work. Um, and there's a section on what to do if you're sick. So a lot has to do with resolution of symptoms in at least uh, 14 days of, of being quarantined. And then lastly, Sean, you're exactly right. Um, it used to be that we wanted to make sure that you were negative, um, but the issue is now testing is a precious resource, right? So, um, so we want to make sure that the people who are coming in and getting tested, um, that they are being able to get tested versus confirming that you're negative in the absence of persistent symptoms. Does that kind of make sense? Um, so we want to be able yeah. to, to use the testing more sparingly in terms of who, who needs it right now. On the topic of uh, being released from quarantine and, and eventually ending these home orders, there is the risk of a second wave and so forth. And we don't know how well immune everyone will be. So we still need to exercise caution and social distancing, even when we're all let out of our homes, I think. But, you know, Sean, 
well, we, we're sort of out of time and uh, your story is, is one of hope. And, uh, you know, we hear all about the horrible things on the news every day that are happening, which we need to pay attention to, of course. But we also shouldn't keep in, we should keep in mind that the majority of patients come through this uh, and it's a mild disease and, and that's a good thing. So there's hope for, for all of us, even if we contract uh, the, the virus. So really appreciate your sharing your story with us today. My pleasure. No, thanks for having me. Thank you. And Scott, do you want to come back on for any final wrap-up comments? Thanks, Tim. I don't think I can get my video to come back, so I'm just going to have to do it in the dark. But that was super informative and helpful, everyone. And we thank you, Dr. Kripe and Oletta, for sharing your time and knowledge again with us today. You guys are a great pair, and you're really great at doing this. So. Thank you, Sean, for being so open and informative, and we're happy that you and your wife are doing so well. And it was awesome to see you smile. Um, you know, it made me, it really touched me to hear you um, be so optimist, optimistic and plain speaking, and it just sounds like a, you know, like you're not really set back at all. And um, I think it provides a lot of hope, even though you did say that everybody, you know, reacts to the virus differently, that's, that's positive for it. So we really wish you the best and uh, stay on that, that path to recovery. And thanks to everybody Thank you. today and put forth the questions, which we can all benefit from. Any questions that we didn't get to, we'll follow up and send uh, an email out along with the archive of the webinar. Um, and also just stay tuned for future, future announcements regarding other webinars. And if you're interested in taking a bit of a deeper dive into childhood cancer topics, we encourage you to check out Dr. Craig's podcast, which is called This Week in Pediatric Oncology. It's available on iTunes and Google Play and also on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Um, and thanks everybody for joining our little fireside chat. I've got the fireplace in the background, but you can't see it, it's keeping me warm. Um, and also just stay well and stay informed and stay hopeful. Sean, you're a testament to that. And uh, everybody have a great day. And thanks again for joining. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Scott. Take care. Thank you, guys. So long. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.